Hello, I'm Philip Morris and I'm joined tonight by David Havs Havard. Good evening. And our special guest tonight, Dean George. Hello, hello, hello. To discuss the latest in science news and scepticism. These conversations used to happen over a drink in our local pub, but the idea came about to bring these musings to the world of the Tinterweb in the form of a podcast. And of course, we're still accompanied by a drink or two. Welcome to A Skeptic's Night In. How are you, lads? Yeah, good, mate. Good, good, I'm great, good. thanks, yeah. Dean, welcome to Skeptics Night In. Tell us a bit about yourself. Well, I'm so happy to be here. Um, I have a degree in English and I currently work in politics, so it's not really a science thing that I'm here for. I, I assume I'm here just to inject a bit of rock and roll into proceedings because uh, I can't think of any other reason. Now, I'm, I'm a veteran of these so-called pub conversations we have. I mean, I've known you guys pretty much all my life, I'd say. Although, you know, in real life, the pub conversations are a lot different to what I hear on this podcast, you know. Habs is a devout Catholic in real life. And... <laughs> <laughs> I think I heard that, Phil, you, you think global warming's a hoax and it's perpetrated by the Jews. Jesus! <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to I'm happy to, to take part in this charade for you guys. <laughs> Thanks, Dean. <laughs> okay, guys, what are we drinking? Halves? I'm drinking uh, my old favourite Tusky. Oh, back on Tusky Polish again. Lager. Yeah, Some because stuff. you know I just got off work and I was running past the off license, so I was just like, I'm just going to get some Tusky. Can't oh, be bothered to be adventurous tonight. <laughs> Dean, uh, it's a very similar situation actually. I was on my way back from work, just in a rush, and I remembered that I needed beer. It's very important to be on this podcast. I ran in and I got a bottle of. Of Double Dragon from Vellinvoyle in Llanelli. It's a fantastic drink if you ever um, see it, if you're in Wales. Yeah, I've had it before, I think. It's very nice. Oh, it is a lovely, lovely beer, yeah. This is really weird because I too did exactly the same thing. I was coming home from work, I was driving um, one of my colleagues home from work and she was just like, I need milk. So I was just like, I need booze. I've got a podcast to record tonight. And I went into the supermarket and I bought Thomas Watkins Taffy Apple Cider. It's really strong, 6%. Big on to the Thomas Watkins at the moment. I'm moving to Swansea soon, so I'm hoping they'll just sort of send me loads of freebies if I mention them often enough. Why why, why do you think I bought Valen Vile? I didn't go for for Carlsberg tonight. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, why did I go Tusky? They're a Polish beer. (laughs) Ah, miles away, mate. What's wrong with you? So for our first news story, we're going to be discussing the fastest ever neutrino. And I saw this story on the BBC website and it's written by Jonathan Webb. The BBC is reported as the fastest ever neutrino among a slew of fresh findings. Yes. I know, I know it's exciting news, but I wonder about Jonathan Webb sometimes. A slew. <laughs> a slew of fresh findings. Yes, it's a bit bizarre language, isn't it? Essentially, in Antarctica, there is an observatory called the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory, um, and it's a neutrino telescope. And it's located near the South Pole in Antarctica, and it has thousands of sensors that are distributed over a cubic kilometre of volume under the Antarctic ice. It was completed in late 2010. But first, what are neutrinos? think is a really really small undetectable particle they're everywhere they like go th- they go through everything they're almost undetectable but some guy detected them in the desert in the early 60s or something like that yeah they t- they tend to go through the gaps in between atoms so they're that, that small so you've got a brick the vast majority of that brick even though it feels really heavy you hold it up is empty space because the vast yeah. majority of all matter is pretty much just empty space because this is there's a vast gap between your nucleus and the electrons that go around it so yeah, the neutrinos fly right. through through I'm the gaps I'm, I'm, in between Am I right in thinking, due to the name, that they have no charge? Well, they essentially have no charge, yes. Okay, so neutrinos are subatomic particles, and they're produced by the decay of radioactive elements. And they lack electric charge, or, as a physicist called F. Reigns, he says that they are the most tiny quantity of reality ever imagined by a human being. This is just because they are so small and that they very rarely interact with anything. I think they were on, weren't they on the suspect list for being dark matter at one point because no one quite knew what they did? Yeah, that's right. I think physicists, they've recently been re-examining that theory. They think neutrinos still could be what dark matter is. So what? But so a neutrino could actually research. be, it could actually have mass. So we, we at the moment we think neutrinos are massless particles, but if they actually do have mass, then they're dark matter. Neutrinos are one candidate for dark matter, but only if they have 
a non-zero rest mass. Ah, uh, Phil, well done. So neutrinos interact only via the weak force and gravity, which would explain why we don't see dark matter. Yeah, so that's why we can't see dark matter, because it can't be detected through interactions with light, like normal matter. Mm -hmm. So that's why they're thinking it's a, a candidate for dark matter, because simply because we can't see dark matter, and that would kind of explain why. The but they had no charge, no mass, and, and they didn't know really what where they were coming from. Or I mean, there's been loads of research since then, but they could well be still on the list, as you say. There are many neutrinos that have a mass of one five thousandth of an electron. The mass of all the neutrinos in the universe could make up for the missing matter. There's 65 billion neutrinos passing through your thumbnail every second. Which is a phenomenal number. We're not saying that neutrinos are dark matter, we're just saying that they're a candidate for them. Just they are clear. a candidate, yes. Yeah. And that's also not what, no, the, that's not what this recent is about the recent discovery is about. No, no, but it's super interesting. It okay, is interesting. Back on to the new story. So yeah, they're basically weakly interacting particles that means they're able to pass through the universe in a straight line and not be affected by anything in their way. Obviously some do uh, interact but it's very rare. The Ice Cube experiment has doubled its count of cosmic neutrinos from outer space by searching for rivals passing through the planet from the north. Most uh, neutrino detectors are trying to observe neutrinos that are coming from above. So most are built under a couple of kilometers underground and then these neutrinos will pass through the earth and then hopefully interact with a molecule in their detector. But what they did differently was they've been looking from the other side of the planet. So they're in the south pole so they're looking at neutrinos that have passed through the earth and ah. are on their way out the south this has meant that they have been able to uh, double the count of these cosmic neutrinos they announced last week that they've detected the highest energy neutrino to date meanwhile a detector in italy have reported the first evidence for neutrinos produced beneath the earth's crust and these are called geoneutrinos, oh. and they carry much less energy, but they inform us about the radioactive processes generating heat inside our planet. So they have a source, do they? They're part of a radioactive decay process, aren't they? What's going on in the core is nuclear fission, mm. whereas what's going on in the heart of a star is nuclear fusion. They essentially know that lower energy neutrinos are going to be coming from our planet or the sun. But if you want to look out towards the rest of the galaxy or other galaxies, then they'll be much, much more energetic. That's fascinating. Last week, biologists discovered evidence of the first two species of venomous frogs living in Brazil. Published in the journal Current Biology, Professor Edmund Brody and Dr. Carlos Jarrod reported that two known species of frog, Carithomantis greeningi and Aparasfendon brunoi, have a delivery mechanism to inject its toxin into a potential predator. Jarrod was purportedly an unlucky victim when the frog delivered a dose of potent toxin using a bony spine on its head. He experienced excruciating pain up his arm for about five hours but luckily for him the toxin was from the greeningi frog and is far less potent than the brunoi frog so the encounter was painful but thankfully not fatal we've known how dangerous these sorts of frogs are for ages so what's so different about this story there is a difference between an animal that is venomous and an animal that is poisonous venomous creatures like snakes use a mechanism to actively inject toxins into their victims whereas poisonous creatures like most frogs only transfer their toxins via direct contact with the skin or ingestion. So the bony spines that these frogs have got are the delivery mechanism, and that makes them the first venomous rather than poisonous frogs to have been discovered. So the researchers suggest that the mechanism would be most effective in the mouth of a predator. So if a predator comes up, chomps on these frogs, headbutts them in the top of the mouth, injects their um, venom and basically kills the animal flat. Phil, does it then escape or is it for the good of the species? Because that's, that's the difference, isn't it? The, the, this venom works really, really fast. It's super potent. Oh, wow. Was it the most deadly poison? poison dart frog is called Phyllobates terribilis or the golden poison frog. It's poison is enough to kill something like 30 grown adult men. This has implications, doesn't it, for evolution? Most poison dart frogs use uh, lipophilic alkaloid toxins that's secreted through their skin and they think the toxin is developed from alkaloid rich diet including ants, centipedes and mites. They've reared poison dart frogs in captivity and controlled its diet to be low in these alkaloids and the toxicity has 
is reduced significantly. But then if you feed them then this diet with the alkaloids in it, it becomes a lot more toxic again. There are some predators though that have developed an immunity. There's a snake called Lamodophis epinephalus that's developed an immunity to the poison it predates on some poison dart frogs and so there's like a, an arms race i think going on with the, the toxicity of these frogs this is the alarming thing isn't it because there's so much we don't know biodiversity wise you know with, with, with many fauna yeah. and, and flora and things like that and obviously you know every time they they strip the uh, rainforest like an acre of the rainforest you know they're just spreading on a cancer cure the, the interesting thing here though is the fact that the difference between poison and venom is, is an interesting one but it's it's about how they produce this poison in their glands through diet or, or whoever it might be naturally that's always been assumed with frogs uh, or amphibians as opposed to reptiles is that amphibians would would just be poisonous kill one predator and then that predator doesn't eat another one or dies and then the other predators know not to eat anymore isn't it that was the whole point of yeah the, like, they, they sort evolution. of they evolve yeah. these bright colors alongside toxicity so it's it's sort of like a warning system or they, they think it's a warning system anyway there's lots of contrasting it depends theories on the species, about it. i think i think some it does of them, depend, some of them yeah. aren't yeah it's interesting because then you think well there's somewhere along the chain then you've got these species that are sort of like almost like a missing link between your venom venomous snakes and your your poisonous toads uh, I think the researchers who found these two species of frog, they were saying that this could be a hell of a lot more common than they've previously thought. They are pretty certain that they're going to find a lot more venomous frogs, basically. These two frogs that they've discovered are venomous are frogs that have, they were discovered like over 100 years ago. We've known about them. It's just that they didn't know that they had this injecting mechanism. And no, so they've observed so them doing it, right? They've observed, they've only just observed yeah. them doing it because the, the understanding of the biology of these frogs is quite limited, really. When I was little, I learned about poison dart frogs, like off the Really Wild Show with Michaela Strachan. You must have watched Oh, I love it. Yeah. And I didn't think, maybe I was a racist eight-year-old, but I didn't think they'd have the sophistication <laughs> to extract the poison. So in my head, they were just getting like a tube, stuffing the frog down there, and then like blowing on the tube so that the frog would fly <laughs> through the air. And being a, sort of, being a sort of animal rights child, I was really against it. <laughs> Stop blowing frogs out of cannons. That's amazing. <laughs> So for our final news story, I'm going to be talking about a new study that suggests that insomniac should be given placebo pills mixed with real sleeping pills. US scientists say they have developed a novel therapy for long-term insomniacs, which does not leave them taking ineffective drugs and suffering from intermittent sleepless nights. However, questions remain as to whether it's ethical. So essentially, pills against insomnia often lose their effect within 12 months after being taken nightly and this also gives significant side effects such as like drowsiness headaches confusion in the day they think you can train the body to produce this response just by the same color pill so it's almost like a conditional behavior thing and that's something that's probably to do with their cognition has can you tell us more the placebo effect is the mere fact that you believe something's gonna work it does say you have anxiety and someone gives you a pill and says this will reduce your anxiety you take it thinking it has some drugs in it that will lower your heart rate or reduce your anxiety or whatever and it works but then you're told actually it had no active chemical in it it's just a sugar pill the placebo effect is an extremely powerful phenomenon placebo effects are used in, in experimentation in order to test whether medicine is, is working yeah exactly so the placebo effect is used in every single clinical trial going well any scientifically valid experiment a any trial that involves a drug or taking a pill or, or anything usually not even pills you can have placebo acupuncture placebo therapy practice you know it's it doesn't have to be pills but <laughs> most of the, a lot of that is placebo used. anyway isn't it because there's, oh, there's no course. real evidence and to show so that they were well thing is with let's say acupuncture the researcher will get a group of people give them acupuncture get another group of people don't give them acupuncture and then measure the differences between the groups but this is not taking into account the placebo effect so mm -hmm. in those two groups there'll be big differences because the people who are getting acupuncture having this placebo effect. And then the group that has nothing has nothing. So it will seem that acupuncture works and it's amazing and it cures backache and all sorts. When you compare two groups, give one of them real acupuncture, give one of them a placebo acupuncture, 
Which is a simulated acupuncture. Yeah, which doesn't pierce the skin, but it still feels like it, and you'll have the same system. And then once you add this placebo control group, there is no effect across mm. the board. And this is why the placebo effect is so important in clinical trials. And what they do a lot of the time in clinical trials is we have one group on the actual drug, one group on the placebo drug. But what they do is they, they call it a double-blind trial because the patient doesn't know which drug they're on and neither does the physician who's running the trial, so that it removes all bias from the study. What I find interesting about the sleeping pills thing is that this is almost a, a way to wean people off their addiction to uh, sleeping pills then. Yeah, what this study is suggesting is that because sleeping pills don't work if you take them all the time, and that they can produce some pretty severe side effects, that if you mix it you know, half and half, then you get the sleeping improvements, but you don't get yeah. as severe side effects, and the treatment can work for longer. But there are huge ethical problems with this because as you know, as a healthcare provider, it is unethical to just not tell people what's in the in their drugs. You know, when people are getting something from the doctor, they need to have that confidence that they are giving them something that's gonna work. You see, whether, no one has this problem with it, it, it kind of be like homeopathy. Yeah, but no one trusts people going on about homeopathy <laughs> just saying, Oh well that works, you know, but no one's going, Oh that's, well, that's unethical. A, you know, surely that is unethical, isn't it? Different, that's a different issue because um, oh, yeah. to, my, to my knowledge, no one has ever died from, from a, an overdose of homeopathy. Because it's just water. <laughs> <laughs> It is right. Okay, so when you go to your naturopath, which we don't obviously, <laughs> but when, when you go to your naturopath, you aren't really expecting them to be telling you the truth and that they are backed by mountains of evidence. But when you go to the doctor, you expect that they've gone to med school, they know everything about medicine. You know they're going to treat you. We you do, need to be do. able to trust them. But I think think you could if you were had an addiction problem or you felt like the side effects would you couldn't take them anymore. Then you I could, think it goes against the Hippocratic both. Then you'd probably sign a waiver, wouldn't you, to have a placebo installed at some point. But as I said earlier, a placebo effect still has an effect, even if you're told you're taking the placebo. So if you just told people, oh yeah, this part is 50% placebo, 50% sleeping pills. They wouldn't know which then, one's which. Yeah, so then surely then that would be ethical because they're not lying to you. Absolutely. Or you could just go 100% sleeping pills, whatever, what I mean, you know, it could be your choice. What exactly is in a sleeping pill? Do we know what the active ingredients are? Because I've got a um, Boots Nighttime Herbal Tablets in front of me here. I've got a packet of them that I bought in about 2009, and I haven't used... It's a complete full packet. I haven't used any of them. Because when I read the back of it, it's... Each foam-coated tablet contains extract of hops, equivalent to 200 milligrams... Extract of passion flower, equivalent to 130 oh. milligrams, no, and way. extract of valerian, equivalent to oh, 160 yes. milligrams. Oh, yeah, valerian. Okay, so that's what, what I was waiting what? for, yeah. Right, so, what? valerian root, there's been lots of research behind it, and the research is inconclusive. Some studies have shown that it does have sleeping improvements, and some say that it has none, but all the studies basically say there is no side effect of drinking, say, valerian root tea. So, I don't know, the research is out at the moment. Well, I mean, you've had those tablets since 2009. You didn't think throw them out. You just thought maybe one day we'll do a podcast on sleeping tablets and these will come in handy. <laughs> um, I, I, I assume that those weren't bought, but over the counter they were available on the shelf. Yeah. If you were in the business of trying to put yourself to sleep, would you assume that they would sell that on the shelf? That would something that would knock you out. Well, yeah, this is it. Yeah. So that's it's a pinch of salt, really. It's like um, mm. it's an agreement that this is a herbal composition. It might have an effect on you. To be honest, if I down a can of Red Bull in one go which I have been known to do sometimes I go straight to sleep it makes me really really tired now you know caffeine doesn't have that effect but there's something in my biology or something I do every time or maybe it's just a complete false psychological effect that makes me feel really tired maybe so, just get a sugar crash yeah it could be a sugar crash there's probably a scientific reason um, so I think there's some merit to those herbal sleeping tablets that work for some people and that's why they continue to sell because to be honest if, if they didn't do anything at all people wouldn't buy them so I, I think there is there's even either, if it's just a well, a, a study in 2012 showed that half the effect of sleeping pills comes from the placebo effect. To finish off, I think that it's just one study and the sample size was fairly small, Very but small. I think it's an interesting idea and it'd be interesting to see where this goes and what other people, what doctors takes on it, because obviously we're not medically trained. So it'd be really interesting to see a medical side of this. So who hopefully... Else, who uh, else isn't medically trained? Um, the politicians who make the decisions whether something is on the NHS or not? 
Oh. <laughs> um, so you've just got as much right to take one study and make a decision as anyone else has. So, <laughs> so now we're going to play Seeing Through the Myth. So I'm going to be giving Phil and Dean four statements. Three of them are commonly held beliefs or myths, and one is a truth. And they have to find that truth. Number one, you cannot cure someone with crossed eyes, eye strabismus. Number two, the most dangerous time for sun gazing is during a solar eclipse. Number three, wearing the wrong prescription glasses will damage your vision. And number four, sitting too close to the TV or a monitor damage your eyes. And I think this week we should start with Phil. See, I've never heard of strabismus. I've heard of crossed eyes, obviously, but... I don't see that many people with whose eyes are just crossed all the time. You see some people... <laughs> do you know what I mean, though? You, you see people with lazy eyes occasionally, but you don't see people... Can I, just say, can I just say, Phil, it can be very, very subtle, and also people tend to wear glasses that correct their vision, that they might appear that they've got eyes like normal people. Thanks for the tip there, Dean. Cheers. <laughs> the second one, the most dangerous time for sun gazing is during a solar eclipse. Probably statistically true because more people are looking at the sun during a solar eclipse than they would do normally. I wouldn't say it was more dangerous than say normal sun gazing because surface of the sun is obscured. I know you're not supposed to use welding glass which I did in the last eclipse that was earlier on this year. Um, Dean, didn't you had an interesting one there, didn't you? You used something like a film from a floppy disk. Basically, I wouldn't recommend anyone and do this but to get, it's just a polarizing effect isn't it so you get mm. um, do people listening know what a floppy disk is it was a little plastic thing that you stuck in a computer <laughs> and it had like it had about 3 MB on it yeah the inside of that it's got like a semi-transparent sort of brown disk and if you uh, if you look through that you could sort of do it but I, it's basically the same as looking through polarized sunglasses which they say you shouldn't do so I wouldn't recommend that one no the welding glass seemed to work no welding glass works because um, if you're just looking straight into to the heat of a, a welder that is very very bright compared to looking just on a sunny day when you're driving so wearing the wrong prescription glasses will damage your vision i don't know about that one you don't tend to wear glasses that aren't prescribed to you i don't know about that one sitting too close to the tv or a monitor will damage your eyes i've heard that one obviously everyone's heard that one that you'll get square eyes when you're a kid your parents tell you not to sit too close to the tv i don't buy that one personally because people do spend an awful lot of time sitting close to a a computer monitor these days and I don't think there's a greater incidence of bad eyes so I think that one's a myth I'm also going to say that the second one's a myth dangerous time for sun gazing during the solar eclipse I have no idea about the first one so it's just going to be a 50-50 here between one and three I'm going to go for number three I think that wearing the wrong prescription glasses will damage your vision I think that one's true okay great and now Dean okay can I take these in reverse order that's okay yeah sure okay so number four sitting too close to the TV or a monitor will damage your eyes well as Phil correct stayed a lot of people do that it's also one of those things your mum tells you when you're trying to watch tv really close so i don't believe that one at all wearing the wrong prescription glasses will damage your vision that's another thing that's sort of like what your mum says like when you sort of try on somebody else's glasses for a joke i do find it frustrating because i've got 20 20 vision it, although it will not damage your eyes it probably will give you eye strain and uh, and do that because i know there's a lot of stuff about that number two the most dangerous time for sun gazing is during a solar eclipse i know that's not true because again because the phrasing the most dangerous time is the faster car me there's no way the sun is brighter on that day it's just that today a lot of people are going to be looking up so they tell you be careful number one you cannot treat someone with crossed eyes now this one's interesting because i know a few people with this condition and some people have got crossed eyes that develop in the womb like the eyes are malfigured in the, in the womb somehow and, and that can never be cured and i know for a fact that a friend of mine applied to be a pilot and he was turned down due to his like astigmatism like his lazy eye very slight lazy eye. so i imagine if it was something that was quite easily curable you know maybe you could have worked around that phil you've gone for number three and I'm thinking that's probably, that may be correct. I'm going to go for number one, that you cannot treat somebody with strabismus, crossed eyes. Okay, so Dean, you've gone for number one, you cannot treat someone with crossed eyes, and Phil, you went for number three, wearing the wrong prescription glasses will damage your vision. So I'll just do this in order. Number one, you cannot cure someone with crossed eyes. This is a myth. Children are unable to outgrow strabismus on their own, but with help, it can be more easily treated at a younger age. So you need to catch crossed eyes very, very early because after a certain age, it's permanent. So this is why it's really important that your child has an eye exam very early. So first when your child's an infant and then by the age of two. Okay, so number two, the most dangerous time for sun gazing is during a solar eclipse. And this one is 
is true. Oh, wait. Hang on. What? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm going to get so much stick from you guys. This is, this is statistically, isn't it? The darkness that accompanies an eclipse can override our natural tendencies to squint or avert our eyes. So we're looking at the sun for a lot longer. And this means it's increasing the amount of UV radiation landing on the back of our retina, which makes it more likely that you'll sustain eye damage. Do a lot of people do sun gaze? Well, some people are idiots, but... <laughs> what would be the reason to, to sun gaze? Some amateur astronomers do look at the sun through a telescope, but they do use sun filters because they want to have a look at the sunspots and things like that. I don't know why you'd look at the sun with a naked eye. But if you were an astronomer and you tried to do it without sun filters, you wouldn't really see anything, would you? No, it would burn your retinas off, though. Even if you risked your retinas, you still wouldn't see anything. Okay. No. Surely, yeah, My argument but... is, like, not only do you have a reason to look up, you're also able to look up. <laughs> it's really hard to look at the oh, sun. What I'm essentially like, saying, no well, yeah. The takeaway message here is that you can get eye damage from looking at eclipses. But is, it, is it more dangerous than looking at the sun when it's not an eclipse, I, I, is yeah, the question, okay, isn't well, it? If I look at the sun for five minutes without an eclipse, is it less more damaging or less damaging than looking at... Well, I'm not sure, because you'd find it very hard to begin with. That's my point. Whilst, whilst you're doing this, are you, ho <laughs> are you holding your eye lids open because yeah, otherwise say, you'll squint someone, naturally let's say, some, let's say somebody was torturing me and they <laughs> held my eyes open no no seriously it was hypothetical here and they made me look at the sun for five minutes yeah right? but you're not sun gazing you're being tortured <laughs> ah, my point is i don't think anyone sun gazes because you can't because you squint i know what you're saying because i know exactly you, what because you're saying you can't squint because you don't squint because you can because you naturally don't squint it is technically the most dangerous time the, yeah, the, i think the is, understand yeah. the understanding here is that it's not more dangerous from the perspective of the amount of radiation coming from the sun what Habs is saying is it's more dangerous because of our reaction to looking at the sun yeah okay no, I, I'm, st I'm still not 100% happy because with it, it but... because to be honest <laughs> my point still stands yeah, yeah, it, yeah but I understand that Habs is correct as well don't look at the sun kids <laughs> <laughs> So number three, wearing the wrong prescription glasses will damage your vision. So this one is obviously a myth. So glasses are devices used to sharpen your vision. Prescribed lenses for vision correction are made to help you see at your fullest capability. So wearing the wrong prescription, it doesn't damage or worsen your vision at all. It's just that what you're seeing just isn't sharp. So number four, sitting too close to the TV or a monitor is bad for your eyes. And this one is a myth. So doing this may hurt your eyes, but it's only temporary. Because the problem comes from uh, when you're staring at them for long periods of time, you tend not to blink as much. But when you're not blinking as much, you, your, your eye dries. And if a tear film is a little on the dry side, then the quality of vision suffers. But it's not going to cause any long-term damage. If you use uh, the blue light... Is it from phones and tablets? Have you heard of this? Yeah. So it's the frequency of light emitted from tablets and, and things like that, and it affects your sleep. Is that fair? Yeah, am I, am I yeah I've heard wrong? that one, yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely yeah. right. Blue light is supposed to trigger um, wakefulness. Yeah, so well, there's something called the suprachiasmatic super nucleus. It sits behind the optic chiasm in your brain, so where the uh, information comes from your eyes. This sort of light tells your brain that it's still daytime. Yeah, I have one of those morning simulator alarm clocks really? that kind of gets bright. It's supposed to be sort of a more relaxing way of waking, but it doesn't seem to work for me. Any sort of waking for me is unrelaxing. That's because you're used to waking up at like two in the afternoon, so when it's sunlight out already. <laughs> that is true, yeah. <laughs> Okay, we've got a quick correction to make after last week about Gethin's shark facts. Uh, so Gethin said that the oceanic white tip is the shark that's killed the most number of people because it was the shark that came on first on the scene at the Titanic and ate most of the survivors. I had a conversation with a friend of mine, Helen Cadwallader. She's doing a PhD in New Zealand on marine biology, and she told me that that's probably not true. She said that it was a rumour, never confirmed, and they tend to only be in areas of water 20 degrees up, uh, and very few sharks can thermoregulate. So it's unlikely that sharks were that far north. Most Titanic victims were dead by hypothermia and drowning. But she did say that uh, it's definitely one of the ones that's most likely to eat humans, but they are oceanic scavengers. And they're often ones that will clean up after boats sink. Its food is often de dead of exposure first. In fairness to Gethin, it would have made the film Titanic a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
In our main topic today, we will be talking about the future of the energy industry. How have renewables progressed over the last decade or two, and will we get to a stage where we cease our reliance on fossil fuels? And if we can produce clean and sustainable energy, why aren't we doing it? Almost all the energy we're able to consume today comes directly or indirectly from the star at the centre of our solar system, the sun. Whether it's biological energy created and buried in the form of oil and gas, solar energy produced from the photovoltaic effect, or wind generated by energy transfer and the Coriolis effect. The sun is the hub of our wheel. The supply of energy from our sun is seemingly endless for our needs, but in the form we prefer to use it, coal, oil and gas, our supply is running thin. The answer to this problem is not without its challenges, however, and the need for a solution is being accelerated by the consequences of consuming this buried solar energy. So what alternatives are there? Fracking, isn't it? Fracking, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Renewables are now creeping into everything now. Like, it is becoming slightly more mainstream, I would say, wouldn't you? Yeah. But what it is, it's not fast enough and blah 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 and it's not on a big enough scale and though I think China produces like most of its energy through wind now doesn't it? A large proportion of China's energy generation is yeah. from renewables. They lead the world in production use of wind solar and smart grid technologies generating almost as much water, wind and solar energy as France and Germany's power plants combined. But again like China's a terrible example for the environment but it's one of those things that I think they literally just did to annoy America because that's the kind of yeah, that's fantastic. You want, yeah. you want yeah. people to compete at who can be the most renewable that is the ideal political showmanship that you want to see on a global level really the, the caveat to that though is that they do produce an awful lot of fossil fuel they emissions do, yeah. because beyond, of the yeah. coal plants I mean it's just because they're such a massive company, uh, country they've got loads of people there <laughs> so they need to produce a lot of energy I think the two worst countries are Australia and Canada yeah the Australian government are a bit half-assed about reducing their carbon output uh, Canada aren't too good either I'm they're... surprised at Canada because they, they still I'm not... have a lot of state-owned infrastructure yeah I'm not though because the politicians who run Canada aren't that good at following scientific recommendations. You see they it in the me- in... progressive. Yeah. No, they're not very progressive at all. Um, I mean, that could change. That could change. So, what sort of energy can we produce? One of the cheapest forms of renewable energy at the moment is solar energy. Now, there are two methods of generating solar power. You can use concentrated solar power or you can use photovoltaics. Now, concentrated solar power works using a system of mirrors and lenses to concentrate a beam of solar energy in much the same way as you use a magnifying glass onto a single point to generate heat to drive the plant. Photovoltaics convert light into electricity by creating a chemical electrical imbalance like the charge in a battery in a solar cell's material, which is usually silicon bonded with boron or phosphorus. And photovoltaics are becoming increasingly more efficient as an energy producer, and they're also becoming increasingly inexpensive. The major challenges of solar power is that the peaks in solar generation don't necessarily converge with the peaks in energy usage. One way of tackling that problem with solar energy is to start using batteries. There's been an advance in lithium-ion batteries over the last 10-20 years, but it's not really up to the stage where we can start using it to store large amounts of solar energy like we do with the grid. It's just um, gradual change, isn't it? It's there's no gradual change no at the moment. big discovery that increases capacity. It's just yeah. slow incremental change. I would argue as well that I have to charge my phone every night and that's lithium ion isn't it? Yeah it is. (laughs) If you used star battery it wouldn't charge your phone at all. The only reason you're able to have a phone as powerful as a smartphone is because lithium ion batteries exist. This sort of advancement in lithium-ion batteries has really pushed forward the information revolution to a certain degree, but we're sort of hitting the wall now with battery technology. Unless we can find a new element combination that works better than the lithium-ion battery. And one way that they're doing that is they're using the increased computational power that we have from processors at the moment to run computer models to work out combinations of elements that might give us a better charge than the conventional batteries that we have at the moment. So there is some interesting work going in into solar panels and it's also, as I said, one of the cheapest forms of renewable energy. So we really ought to be utilising a lot more than we are. It's interesting with solar power because I always think of it, you know, it's one of the first sort of renewable energy things you encounter because it's on like the old stool sort of calculators, you know, the little solar panels. And I often think that that could be one application is that it would be a largely small scale sort of micro producing technology. So that's why often, you know, solar panels on a 
house is quite commonplace now. Mm. Also, I think they put solar panels onto wind turbines, is it? Because it's so large, they require mm. some amount of energy to actually help them move. And then the rest, the rest is momentum from the wind. If they couldn't be pushed by the wind from standstill, they require some sort of motor to actually move them to begin with. Entirely. That's where I see solar energy kind of fitting in. Is It's kind of like a way to get free energy in, in a way to, to do smaller tasks. Basically, there's been a lot of movements to try and prettify renewable technology because a lot of people think it looks ugly or it's an eyesore. I think there's a massive mm. problem in Wales, actually, specifically with wind turbines, to be honest. Like, you know, they spoil the view, they spoil the countryside. It's been the debate for decades. It's ridiculous. I actually heard a story, uh, I know this is anecdotal, but um, there was uh, somebody down in, in this area in South Wales where there's like, I think it's a, a gas works and there were sort of lights on at night over, overlooking this hill and this, this woman complained to the paper that since they put the wind turbines up, she can't see the lights of the uh, gas station. <laughs> oh, I was looking at sort of technologies that they might have wireless charging for phones using solar energy and things like that. And also these little 3D printed trees. So they look like trees. They're little solar cells that look like leaves and they're all different colours and they're attached to this like plastic sort of stem. Those can be just printed out randomly. So you can like you print out a little mini solar cell, stick it in and then just use it to, um, you know, they harvest little batteries basically. And they're also talking about turning these trees into into mini sort of very, very small scale wind turbines as well. So they'd be solar and wind at the same time. So that's in prototype stage, isn't it? Because I think I saw this and it was fascinating. 3D printing is, is an industry that I think would, would probably go some way to help renewables because it's just the potential there. I mean, they're, they're on about 3D printing, you know, human organs, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we're, in a, we're in a place now where you imagine that's going to cut a lot of costs down with some of these issues they've had with, with building these things. The other thing I wanted to talk about is whether you, you thought things like uh, geothermal and tidal energy, those kind of large scale structures like that, is that something you see as something that's viable to invest in? Because I know it's very, very expensive. You can use geothermal energy in the UK, but it's not as efficient as, say, if you're in... You could use it in Italy, certainly, um, because there's a lot of geothermal energy there. Uh, do you know what the electric mountain is? Like, it creates electricity, as the name suggests, um, but it's... Is it hydroelectric? Hydroelectric power is where you basically use running water to power a turbine, which generates electricity. So I should probably mention how electricity is generated um, in a power plant. Uh, you basically have a, a magnet that runs through a coil, and that generates charge in the coil. So anything that has a turbine uh, that can spin this magnet around in this coil will generate charge. So a coal-burning power plant, the energy from the coal will heat water into steam, which drives a turbine, which then spins this magnet around in the coil, juice electricity from the plant. The concentrated solar power, that's the same principle. You just heat up water, and the steam then drives a turbine, creates electricity. The wind turbine is the same thing. So you're using the wind to spin turbine to, again, rotate something through this coil to make electricity. So a lot of these things are doing the same, uh, using the same mechanism to create electricity in that way. Photovoltaics are slightly different because the light shining onto the material charges the electrons, essentially. So it excites the electrons and creates a chemical imbalance. So you have more ions on one side than the other. And then this means that the ions flow from one side to another, which is exactly the same way that a charged battery works. Yeah, photovoltaics are slightly different, but that's generally how we generate charge in power plants. In terms of, so geothermal, that is dependent on plate tectonics then? So you, you can use this, the same principle again with uh, geothermal power. You use geothermal heat to heat water, to steam, to drive a turbine, to create electricity. They tend to, like, uh, ground source heat pumps. They tend to use it for heating rather than electricity production uh, yeah. for geothermal power. But um, you can use them in volcanic areas um, so for Phil, producing say like, electricity. Um, say, like, in Lanzarote, they have all these, like, you know, geysers or whatever. So you'd essentially go to an area that has a high concentration of geysers because there's some sort of lava flow down there somewhere. Yeah, there's residual the heat under the ground. So you just, you, you put a tank under there, essentially, uh, to ah, okay. an area that's quite hot. And, and it'll feed a steam through to these turbines. There's been a massive development in South Wales now for this tidal barrage. Is that is that mm. basically kinetic energy again? Or? Again, it's slightly different. There's no steam involved there for the heat. That's literally just the movement of the tides moves 
this magnet essentially through the coils to create electricity. Yeah, so I mean, in, in terms of looking at smarter energy and um, future, you're you're looking at basically value for money. How easy is it to run these kind of things as well? Kind of looking at yield versus you know the costs of actually getting that yield. So it's important geographically as well. So we could use solar panels in the UK. They wouldn't be as efficient as say tidal power because we're an island nation. We could utilize a lot of tidal power and also wind power is quite good for us as well because we've got a lot of onshore and offshore winds. I personally think we should be looking more towards having more tidal power. The tidal lagoon that they're building in Swansea is going to be fantastic because it represents one of the first uh, tidal projects in the UK. Another thing that they've been trying to get past ecologists for ages is the Severn Barrage. They've got the Thames Barrage, but the River Severn, especially with the tidal bore that runs up and down the River Severn, could produce enough energy to power 5% of homes in the UK. It's difficult to get past conservationists and ecologists who are worried about bird populations. To be fair, there was a lot of ecological concerns with this yeah, there is, yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, but engineers work to get around these problems, so we could still see the seven barrage if engineers are able to prove that it would be safe ecologically. I am, I am a, a person who values nature, and, and as I said earlier about you know you got a value, you can't just rip the rainforest apart for your own means, and that that is what's happened. That's probably worse, isn't it? I mean, you've got to look at the the actual costs. I mean, the fossil fuels do far more damage to the environment than the barrage mm. ever will. If you increase the global temperature temperature by the four degrees that is projected by 2100 it's not only us will face the consequences it's wildlife across the globe as well and you're already seeing like polar bears uh, their habitat shrinking because that's arctic sea ice every year we have a responsibility to try and curb CO2 emissions. I know um, people will disagree, stop but it's, it's almost like cut your losses, you know. It's like, yeah. But it's, the other thing as well is that the issue that a lot of ecologists have with and conservationists have with putting a barrage in the Severn isn't really that big a deal. It's just that because a lot of the bird populations will migrate. They'll just go somewhere else. There might be a reduced in population total. There's not going to be any extinction there. Whereas if we continue to rely on fossil fuels extinction is what's going to happen it's like a playoff do you conserve the local habitat or do you preserve the global wildlife populations yeah no it's a good point I thought that was a nice because they they could turn around and say well you're you're going to rip up that habitat just because it's it's easy to do and you could have spent that money investing in you know another form of renewable energy is what they'll say you know things around about it is yeah so what about nuclear power halves? I want to tell you why I think if World War II didn't happen, we wouldn't be in the state we are with climate change. That's a bold statement. <laughs> it's a bold statement. Is, is I'm this, slightly regretting it. Phil's point about <laughs> what? <laughs> So nuclear power. So the typical nuclear fuel cycle starts with refined uranium ore, which is mostly the isotope uranium-238. But it also contains 3-5% uranium-235. And this uranium-235 is the fissionable material, which is a very low percentage of the actual uranium ore in itself. So you have to refine this uranium ore to create enriched uranium. So that's just the uranium uranium-235 with a little bit of uranium-238. That's what Homer so one... Simpson juggles in the Simpsons at the intro. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah probably. Yeah. <laughs> Although I think they might have got it wrong on gun for plutonium, which, ah, which yes. is a byproduct. So once in the reactor, this uranium-235 starts splitting and releasing these high-energy neutrons, and then the uranium-238 that's still in there transmutes into other fissile, which basically just means fissionable elements. It transmutes to short-lived uh, uranium-239, which rapidly decays into neptunium-239, and then into plutonium-239. And this plutonium-239 is a weaponizable byproduct, and that's important for uh, a point I'm going to make later. So when uh, the uranium-235 burns down to about 0.3 of the fuel, the fuel is gone. It contains some very radioactive isotopes of americium, technetium, and iodine, as well as plutonium. And this waste fuel is highly radioactive, and they have half-lives of many thousand years. So this basically means that with nuclear fission, you have waste that has to be housed for up to 10,000 years, which is just a ridiculous period of time. By now we must have, if not millions, hundreds of thousands of barrels of this radioactive substance that we're gonna have to keep hidden away for 10,000 years. Yeah, they'd have to like put some serious warning signs on these barrels. 
because <laughs> yeah, if people exactly, like dug them up yeah. in 10,000 years time they'd be like oh what's this what's that's this? interesting and it's still radioactive they could seriously harm people yeah you have like ar- because archaeologists of the future will dig yeah. them up and go oh what are these things <laughs> oh shit i'm dead <laughs> What were these idiots doing back in the, those days? So there's there's still no way of getting rid of that, eh? I, I think I've heard of some experiments that were saying that maybe bacteria could process it and turn it into something less harmful. But, um, yeah, I don't think so. Is there any way we could put it into a subduction zone? I've heard this before, Pete, Ooh. chucking down a volcano, I well, you can chuck it down a volcano because it'll just spew back up. But if you put it in a subduction zone, which is where it's going down anyway, I think that into the mantle. Volcano thing was shorthand for yeah, put chuck it into the Earth's core. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, is that viable? Do you think? I don't know. I, this, this is why I, I, I'm not really sure. It doesn't sound um, viable. Well, it's probably not viable. Otherwise, they'd be doing it. Well, yeah, exactly. The thing, yeah. the thing that confuses me is that there's there's a fair few plants in the world, so they're producing how much waste then? They can't be that much. Otherwise, we'd be up to our eyes. Because I hear that like you don't need you don't need much of a reaction to produce a lot of energy. Right? That's the advantage. It does here. produce a lot yeah. of energy. Yeah. Like, my cool. favorite theory was somebody said to me, um, "Oh well, we just launch into space." I loved how casual that was. Well, I just launched into space. <laughs> yeah. you know how much rock if it will cost to get like one square inch off in, into orbit yeah. like... and also what if what if that mission went wrong oh, it's with serious. all this radioactive material on board <laughs> it explodes in our atmosphere you know. and yeah. spreads it all around the world yeah, just, just nip up to space might die. <laughs> yeah. So basically, they're saying like the, the the debate when I was sort of um because because I I dipped in out of this topic for for a few through a few things and to me it's always been oh we're at the cusp of the of the safer less waste producing alternative which is obviously nuclear fusion which everyone's heard about but that seems to be such a way off that got to weigh up the pros and cons of whether you want a load of waste or whether you want to risk it all and gamble it for the fusion. But the thing is, people always say that waiting for this cheaper yeah. kind of nuclear fuel and we've had it for over 60 years. This is what I was edging towards and it's called thorium. So I want to tell you a lot about thorium because it's amazing. So I've just given you the background on nuclear fuel and I want to tell you what the advantages of thorium are. There's three times more thorium or in the Earth's crust as there is uranium. Three to five percent of that uranium is the uranium you need for fission. But most of the thorium ore is naturally ready for fission. So that's the first point that you have a hell of a lot more of it. And there's the safety side. So unlike uranium-235, thorium is not fissile to begin with. Um, It's easy to do. You simply just start firing neutrons up and when you need the reaction to stop you simply turn off the source of the neutrons and the whole process shuts down and this is what you can't do with the fission that happens with uranium because it just goes off and you have to kind of ride the bull the third point is the byproducts only stay radioactive for 500 years rather than than 10,000 years and there is 1,000 to 10,000 times less of it to start with. The fourth point is that the byproducts of thorium do not create weaponizable material. And do you want to know the reason why we don't have thorium today? It's because of the Manhattan Project. When World War II happened, the Manhattan Project was initiated to create the first clear bomb which was dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima and the reason why we don't have thorium reactors today is because the byproduct of fission with uranium gives you plutonium which is weaponizable the US government decided to pump money oh, into uranium see. reactors okay. because it'll give them weaponizable material that they can create nuclear weapons with if World War II never happened then maybe we would have gone down the thorium route we'd probably be getting most of our energy from thorium now Thank you for telling me that, because I had no idea about that. I've always believed in nuclear as being one of the most viable like energy features we have, and I was only recently converted against it because after it was actually after Fukushima, to be honest. Like when I saw mm. that you can mismanage a plant, and and due to human nature, maybe it's not completely safe. Only due to human nature, you know. And now I look at this, and I I was just reading it while you were saying there that yeah, there's been no investment in thorium, literally due to the fact that they wanted to weaponize uh, nuclear plants so they'd have. You know, nuclear weapons. They're just one of those things. That's that's yeah. a cruel irony. Really. It's unfortunate, isn't it? Yeah. And there, there's been several success attempts at commercial plants, but they've all failed. The last one failed in 1989 in the US. US um, as a plant opening this year. 
it's a research project, it's not an option. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The UK doesn't want to do it for some reason. India is massively invested into it. China, as you would expect, is massively investing into it. And knowing them, they'll forgo any safety regulations. <laughs> we really bashed China on this podcast, don't we? We've done it quite a lot recently. <laughs> like we... Well, they can come back to me when they've got some human rights. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> It's one of those things that I think it's going to be, you know, one of those things that just got caught in the system. And it's, a, it's an unfortunate accident of history, that really. Yeah. Mm. If it had been a bit more of a clearer headed time, you know, they wouldn't have gone to the uranium because it's a ridiculous amount of waste. Yeah. yeah. We did, so, did have been a lot more research into it and it would have probably been viable by now. So now we come to the part of the podcast that I call What's the Cost? This is a game for Habs and Dean to play. I will give them three methods of producing energy in your own home. And I want them to come in and tell me which one costs the most and which one costs the least. So we're going to begin with the first one. The cost of installing a ground source heat pump in your home. The second one, the cost of a roof mounted one kilowatt micro wind turbine on your roof. And the third one. The cost of installing a solar panel on your roof. How's do you want to go first? So how a solar panel the size of your roof? How big is your roof? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, it's, uh, we're, I'm, not, I'm talking about the average cost. I'm sure we've all seen these houses with solar panels on their roof, right? So we're talking about one of them. And so I know solar is a little bit expensive, but I know that they do give you very good um, bursaries for solar panels. Okay, so ground source heat pump. That's essentially just a load of tubing. I I, I don't I can't see that being that expensive because it's just a load of tubing and a pump, right? That's, I don't know, a couple of grand maybe? I, I, I don't see it costing too much. A one kilowatt wind turbine on your roof. So I'm assuming it's just one of these small ones rather than the bigger ones that are mounted in the ground. Without much uh, logic being used, I'm going to go most expensive solar panel the least expensive ground source heat pump and the middle the one kilowatt wind turbine okay dean insights um i i'm not gonna be much on this because uh i don't have any money basically but <laughs> i think i think there's one i i don't see i'm going from what i see and i know ground. what was it called the ground the ground heat source pump. heat pump you're using geothermal power to produce heating in your own home for me the heat pump sounds to me that sounds like a saying it's just a load of tubes which maybe you're right but to me it sounds like a ridiculous endeavor because you've got to rip up all your house up and do some weird stuff with the floorboards and the walls and god knows what else that sounds like a lot of installation costs i suppose that's included right or the whole process right yeah it's installing the wind turbine that's just basically having a little windmill that doesn't sound that expensive just a bit of kit isn't it really and you probably rig that up fairly simple solar panel no they cost a fortune for a fact but I, I don't really know how much i just know it all, all, all over it is they cost a fortune <laughs> so <laughs> i'm going from what what the people who tell me that would consider a fortune so for me i think the most expensive is the solar panel i think after that is the heat pump and the cheapest is the wind turbine okay halves you're going for the most expensive was the solar panel right and the least expensive as the heat pump and dean you're going also for the solar panel is the most expensive and the wind turbine is the cheapest yep everyone's wrong again right so oh. I guess I'll take them from the cheapest. Cheapest was the roof-mounted one kilowatt micro wind turbine as a, at a oh. cost of £3,000. And the second most expensive was the average cost of installing a solar panel on your roof. Oh. The average cost is six to 9000 Now, I really thought Dean was going in the right direction here because uh, <laughs> the most expensive was the cost of installing a ground source heat pump in your home purely because you're not fixing it to your roof like the other two. You, it's got to go underground, uh, so you're digging you know stuff up in order to put you know it in, in me to off. install it. Have threw me off because he said yeah. that it was just a load of tubes and then he said that the solar panel was twelve grand, and I was like, good grief, I didn't know yeah. that. To be fair, it's close. Six to nine thousand. Six to nine, yeah. Not bad, not bad. How much does it cost then, Phil? Eleven to fifteen thousand for a ground source heat pump to install it in your house. That's to purchase and install it. That's not as much as I would imagine. I don't know many people with a ground source heat pump, but I I have seen turbines on roofs and solar panels on roofs quite a lot now. Unlucky lads. Um, I thought I thought I'd go with an energy one this week because we have the the main topic. It is an interesting one. So uh, we've come to the end of the show. Thank you very much for joining us, Dean. It's been a really really good podcast tonight. Well, thank thank you you for yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, I hope to be on again. Um, Yeah, definitely. We'll have you definitely. We'll definitely get you back in the future. Uh, Yeah, we've got a couple of topics that we want to discuss with you at some point. So yeah, we'll definitely have you on in the future. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. 
So we're now on multiple social platforms. So you can join us on Facebook at Skeptics Night In, Twitter at Skeptics underscore NI. If you want to listen to us in your car on your way to work, you can follow us on iTunes at Skeptics Night In. And of course, you can follow our blog and podcast on our website, skepticsnightin.com. And if you have any questions or queries or you just want to give us a topic to talk about next week, you can email us at skepticsnightin at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. We've been a Skeptics Night In.